Blog Talk Radio. We need an action program while we are Muslim, while we are Christian, while we are whatever we are. We still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. This is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. This is our common ground. I'm Janice Graham. Tonight, the lessons of liberation from Malcolm X. Remembering Malcolm and honoring his spirit of love and liberation. We must honor him. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. We need an action program while we are Muslim, while we are Christian, while we are whatever we are. We still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. This is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. My personal political philosophy, black nationalism, which means that the black man should control the politics of his own community and control the politicians who are in his own community. My personal economic philosophy is uh, also black nationalism, which means that the black man should have a hand in controlling the economy of the so-called Negro community. He should be developing the type of knowledge that will enable him to own and operate the businesses and thereby be able to create employment for his own people, for his own kind. And the uh, social philosophy also is black nationalism, which means that instead of the black man trying to force himself into the society of the white man, we should be trying to eliminate from our own society the ills and the, the defects and make ourselves uh, likable and sociable among our, among our own kind. We need an action program while we are Muslim, while we are Christian, while we are whatever we are. We still need an action program that will eliminate these evils that are in our community. This is what we're trying to do with the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. In fact, they tried to make it appear to my brother that I was insane. 
but on a program in Chicago called Hotline, it might have been moderated by Wesley South, John Ali, the national secretary, admitted, uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, one of these days last week, that they absolutely were going to kill me. Why are they threatening your life? Well, uh, primarily because they're afraid that I will tell the real reason that they've been, that I'm out of the black Muslim movement, which I never told. I kept to myself. But the real, real reason is that Elijah Muhammad. I probably am a dead man already. Late Sunday afternoon, Malcolm X was murdered as he was about to address a nationalist meeting at the Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan. Moments later, Malcolm's followers seized one of the gunmen as he tried to escape the scene. Intervening policemen engaged in a brutal tug of war to keep the man from being torn to shreds. The cruel irony is that Malcolm was murdered by members of his own race very people he was fighting for with his extraordinary abilities. And that... show at TruthWorks Network, uh, two co-hosts. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to be looking at the man of always, Malcolm X, looking at and examining his life, the events which brought us to a brand new term of black determination, the liberation lessons of Malcolm X. To black nationalists, he is a black nationalist. To the nation of Islam, he is a great leader and a dangerous hellbound hypocrite in private. To Muslims, he is a Muslim, a martyr in the cause of Allah. To socialists, he was a socialist with a piercing critique of international capitalism and imperialism. To liberals, who want to 
prox- uh, appropriate him, he was an integrationist and thus appears on a postage stamp. To other liberals or conservatives and certain extremists, he was a segregationist, a separatist. To misogynists, he was a misogynist. And to feminists, he was a borderline misogynist. To some psychoanalysts, he was just a troubled child with an unfulfilled, edible complex. To black nationalists, he is a black nationalist. To the nation of Islam, he is a great leader in public and a dangerous, hellbound hypocrite in private. To Muslims, he is Muslim, and we can go on and on. But one of the things that we want to do on this week of his birthday, which was May 19th when he would have been 85 years old, we want to remember Malcolm X, the man of always, and the liberation lessons that he gave us. We're going to be looking at his program of the Organization of Afro-American Unity, where the basic aim was self-determination, national unity. And we're going to be looking at what the pledge of what he left us, pledging unity, promoting justice, transcending compromise. He was the most uncompromising of all spokespersons for we Afro-American peoples. And we thank you once again for being with us here at this Teach Out. How are you, Alpho? Good evening, Janice. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Well, I think that one of the things is that there has, in the time since um, 1965, when Malcolm X was assassinated, that there have been so many deifications, so many um, claims about who Malcolm was that we ought to really pause and look at not only who he was, but what he gave us. And I think that one of the things that he helped us most to understand is that uh, the very act of organization is a form of resistance that we cannot uh, avoid. And uh, you and I had a conversation about um, what I call the deification of dead poets. Um, and one of the things that we talked about was whether or not people care about who Malcolm was or his life or his legacy or the lessons of liberation that uh, he taught us. You know, one of the things that I can remember most about Malcolm, what Malcolm taught me as a teenager, and I heard Malcolm speak three times. The first time I heard him speak, I was nine years old. The second time I heard him speak, I was 11 And the third time I heard him speak, I was 15. And each of those times, he was just uh, uh, an impressionable figure, even as young as I was. And one of the things that um, he impressed upon me uh, 
is the whole issue of discipline, discipline of study, discipline of focus, that while he was one of America's greatest orators, he was also one of America's greatest planners and community builders. And um, that I, I, it, I, I come to the point where I think that sometimes we have to go back, and that's what we want to do tonight, is to listen to the lessons that he taught us in the very short time and, you know, most people think, I mean, we only got Malcolm around 1957, um, 56, 55, 57. And we only had him for a period of about 10 years. But the impact that he made, both in uh, racial um, policies, and political policies in this country. I think people don't always take the time. And this is how we're going to run it, Alpha. Uh I've taken a lot of stuff and I've put them into small audio clips so that we can listen and then take calls. Our number is 1-347-838-9852. And one of the things... Um, I have a number of questions for our audience tonight, and and I'm thinking that maybe you will have some of these answers because the bottom line of all of the work that Malcolm did at the end of his life, he had convinced us that we could win our liberation, that we could enjoin ourselves as African people in a pan-Africanist uh, strategy toward human rights for America and across the globe. Um, and I'm not sure that we remember all of this. I mean, Malcolm had us talking about, in the 60s, talking about foreign policy in a way that we do not talk about it. Uh, average people do not talk about it uh, today. So um, I'm hoping that we can get people to see these lessons of liberation that he offered us. And we want to uh, welcome all of you who are with us. Uh, I see that Dr. Don and, uh, uh, is in our chat room. If you'd like to join our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and join in the discussion as we venture into who was this black shining you think we can do that, Alpha? Well, like you said, he's he was different things to different people at different times. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, looking back on uh, what he hit the message and his teachings, well, I mean, this should be must read, must listen, must pay attention, must understand for the majority, if not all, Mm -hmm. Americans in this nation. You know, it's amazing that um, we tend to miss our opportunities. So what we're going to try to do tonight is revisit 
and relearn uh, the lessons of Malcolm X. And then uh, I have some um, offerings, some suggestions about how people in a spirit of liberation can reawaken our community because I think that's what we need. In this first clip, um, which takes us through the assassination and through the response of the nation uh, to, the to the assassination, we'll take your calls and your response at 347-838-9852. You're listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for being with us. Late Sunday afternoon, Malcolm X was murdered as he was about to address a nationalist meeting at the Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan. Moments later, Malcolm's followers seized one of the gunmen as he tried to escape the scene. Intervening policemen engaged in a brutal tug-of-war to keep the man from being torn to shreds. The cruel irony is that Malcolm was murdered by members of his own race, the very people he was fighting for with his extraordinary abilities. And that is the central theme of this documentary. The telling of this tragedy oft resembles a biblical story or a Shakespearean drama, laden with all the passions that flesh is heir to. Love and hate, loyalty and jealousy, unselfishness and greed, morality and debauchery. May we all profit in the telling of this story, resolving never to repeat its grievous mistakes. A superb intellect with exceptional analytical ability. Gifted as a powerful speaker and blessed with a quality that few others have, incorruptibility. Time would show, however, that Malcolm's glaring frailty lay in his blind devotion to the man who had salvaged him from a life of crime, Elijah Muhammad. Elijah then must also be accorded a dominant role here. As head of the Nation of Islam, also known as the Black Muslims, Elijah provided the structure within which Malcolm would develop. But it wasn't destined to last. This powerful alliance of Elijah and his devoted Lieutenant Malcolm X would be split by individuals within the Nation of Islam as well as by persons working for the United States government who infiltrated, helped divide, and set the stage for Malcolm's ouster from the Nation of Islam and then his murder. Malcolm's brother Wilfred, himself a minister in the Nation of Islam, bore witness to this tragic scenario. His narrative will be key to our story. Percy Sutton, former Manhattan Borough President, currently chairman of the Inner City Broadcasting Corporation, was a friend and personal attorney of Malcolm's. Mr. Sutton is one of the few who stood by Malcolm when the going got rough. Six nights before he was assassinated, an exhausted Malcolm spoke to his followers. His house in Queens had just been bombed. He had been eluding his would-be assassins for the past year. He had been traveling overseas. He had been traveling down south. He was trying to get his two organizations moving, and at the same time, he gave as many interviews as possible, making as many speeches as he could, telling as many as would listen about the complexity of elements that would take his life. 
As many of you know, Sunday morning about 3 o'clock, somebody threw some bombs inside my house. Normally, I wouldn't get excited over a few bombs, but the ones who threw these not only aimed them in rooms where there, where there was no one, but aimed them in rooms where three of my daughters sleep. One daughter six, one daughter four, and one daughter two. I heard on the news today that Joseph, a brother that I found in the garbage can in Detroit in 1952, well, that's where I found him, uh, made the statement that uh, I had bombed my own house. Now, you see, this doesn't surprise me because I know that since many of us left the Muslim movement, its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. Both its intelligence and its morals have gone bankrupt. And now they are using the same tactic that's used by the Ku Klux Klan. When the Klan bombs your church, they say you did it. When they bomb the synagogue, they say the Jews bombed their own synagogue. This is the Klan tactic. And tonight, I'll tell you why the black Muslim movement is now adopting the same tactics against black people as has been up to now the exclusive method of the Ku Klux Klan. I want to point out, too, that I'm not talking about Muslims just to make white people happy because I don't believe in letting anyone use me against somebody else. I'm telling you these things because it has reached a point where I feel that black people in this country need to know what's going on. And I'm talking about an organization which I had a hand in building, which I had a hand in organizing. He'd go throughout the country, he'd go into a city, he'd find somebody who'd be willing to have it in their home, they'd go out and scout up some people and bring them to their home and he would talk to them in their home. And then he would tell them to go out and bring some people, and they'd go out and bring some more, and he would talk to them. And they would start from that, and from that they'd grow until they reached a point of where they had to have a building where they could meet. And how many cities did he do this in? Oh, it's... It, it's there's no way of knowing. All over the country, north and south. He'd be on the road sometimes, just day after day after day, just going across the country to cities that he thought had a population of our people that might be willing to listen and starting. As intelligent as the white man is, or has been in the past, if he knew the, the intensity of the dissatisfaction and impatience, that is building up in the minds of the masses of these black people, you wouldn't see him running around here calling Mr. Muhammad a hate teacher. He would look upon Mr. Muhammad as an alarm clock that's doing him a favor, waking him up out of his sleep before it's too late. He insisted on honesty and in doing the job if you're going to be on it. He didn't require anything of them that he wasn't doing himself. And his act was a hard act to follow. Uh, he didn't... Many times I used to wonder if he realized that people just couldn't be, in general, just couldn't be as dedicated and committed to a thing as he was. You don't find that many people, you don't find too many people that will commit themselves the way he did. Many nights he wouldn't get but four hours sleep, sometimes less. 
he would go until he just couldn't go any farther. And then he'd have to get some sleep. And once he, once he woke up, he'd, go, he'd wake up running. In the late of the night, I've had the chance to talk. In the early morning hours, I had the chance to talk with him. I do know that he was a loyal follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to the extent that I perhaps wouldn't have been, or you perhaps wouldn't have been, a loyalty that was unusual. Representative Powell implied in a statement, I believe it was over the weekend, that he had summoned you to Washington to fill a gap in leadership. Is that correct? <laughs> no. Uh, Adam Clayton Powell has never summoned me anywhere. Adam Clayton, Clayton Powell could not summon me. The only man in America who can summon me anywhere is the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. The stick that I always used in presenting, representing, and defending the Muslim movement was the fact that it had the ability to reform the morals of the so-called Negro community. One time I mentioned to the messenger, I said, you know, uh, sometimes people need a chance to relax. Maybe I'll have some parties or something. Uh, I was just, or uh, picnics, or just something to get away and break them and get a chance to, to relax them. And he told me, he said, you know what would happen? He said, if you let them get anything where near what they used to do, he said, they'll go right back into it. He said, it's just like taking a fish out of water. He said, if you lay that fish on the bank, he's going to flop around until he gets back in the water. <laughs> and he said, the same way these people will do. He said, if, if I let them have any kind of freedom, he said, they'll go right back to boogieing and drinking and everything else that they used to do. The teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad is like uh, nothing I have ever taken. It's a medicine. Right. You see, right. it's a medicine that has cured me of all my ears. Yes, because sir. I was a sick man. That's right. <laughs> and uh, when I embraced the teachings of Honorable Elijah Muhammad, these teachings cured me of these ears. Right. I'm a well man now. Right. And I yes, feel sir. good. That's right. As long as you stay with the doctor, you continue to Yes, sir. Yes, right. sir. The so-called American Negro have to be completely re-educated. He have to be completely uh, made over. The messenger had already spoken that uh, the hair should be cut in a neat manner. But Malcolm began to really emphasize the fact that it should be short. Uh, he said this showed that you had, didn't have a lot of vanity. started Muhammad Speaks newspaper. And there was a time when I could write this entire paper myself with no office whatsoever other than a room in my basement. The messenger himself said many times, publicly, that Malcolm had made him a very wealthy man. And this was... Do you consider yourself militant? <laughs> I consider myself now. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us. We'll be right back. MPR, and here's the truest part about it. MPR leans to the right. MPR leans, and you can ask, you know, and when I say MPR leans to the right, I'm simply speaking about who they have on. They have twice as many conservatives on spewing bovine excrement than they do liberals with their chicken excrement. So... At some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where is the job? What job bills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is 
spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, how you feel about the speed rail, you mean the French can do it? Japan can do it, the Chinese can do it, Europe, they can do it over there, but we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so um, mired in ignorance and mired in, 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 in just, just total obstruction? Listening to the best Pushback Politics, The Alpha Show. Thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are honoring and acknowledging a man of always. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black man. And we're taking a look at the lessons of liberation that he left for us. We thank you all, and we especially thank those of you who are in our chat room. And, Alpha, that was a a very powerful uh, overview of people in the time of Malcolm and how they felt about him, how they viewed him, um, and... I imagine that Malcolm would have been 85 years old today, and many of those people would continue to be loyal to him, to be devoted to him. And they admired him for many things. And one of the things that I think that what we need today is to be in touch with his um, loyalty to focus, Loyalty to staying on on message, and that was one of the things that he did. You talk about that all the time, and that was well, one of the things that he did so well. Well, he wasn't just one. The one he didn't just stay on message. He was unrelenting. He was he, he was uncompromising. In his beliefs, he stood mm-hmm. for what he stood for, mm-hmm. and without mm-hmm. any, you know, equivocation, he stood by what he 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 believed in. Mhm, mhm, absolutely. Um, his legacy is that for Africans in America, for Negroes, for Black people, for Pan Africanists and Black nationalists. 
uh, for working poor people, for oppressed people. He was, and the key is uncompromising. And one of the things that we suffer from right now is that our misleadership and no leadership, they compromise their way to solutions. And by the time you get to the solution, you have nothing but dust. Our number is 347-838-9852 right here at Our Common Ground. If you'd like to comment about your impressions of the legacy and the liberating spirit of Malcolm X, give us a call, 347-838-9852. We're going to go and listen to the second part. We are listening to uh, audio. Um, feature audio. Our featured audio comes from a documentary by the title of The Lost the Loss of Our Warrior. It was one of the best documentaries on Malcolm X. Gil Noble wrote, produced, and narrated it for his Like It Is series, which originally aired May 3, 1981. And one of the finest scholars on Malcolm X, Paul Lee, was a key researcher for this project. And Paul Lee was also the historical consultant uh, I should mentioned for Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie. Our number, 347-838-9852. We're going to go to our phones, and we're going to ask you to make it brief. We've got a lot of material to cover tonight. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you. Get your Malcolm on. Hello? Yes. Greetings, Janice, Alpha. And the listeners out there, how are we doing this Saturday? Good evening to you, Sarah. Thank you for your Hello, call. Hello, Sarah. How are you this evening? Hey, I am great. I was so glad when I got the email saying that y'all were going to be on tonight. So I'll be very brief and not get long-winded. My situation with um, with Malcolm, as you said, you could not have said it more. I happened to heard a broadcast uh, last night with Dr. Leonard Jeffries, and he was doing a commemoration for Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And it was on the same Block Talk Network, and it was very informative and very insightful. Mm-hmm. That was a panel that um, uh, that was um, uh, Michael Imhotep's uh, program, and I also listened to it and found it uh, very good. I, as a matter of fact, I did call Dr. Jeffries to join us tonight, but he was unable to. Okay, well that's most unfortunate. We we um we could please see if you could get him and Professor Smalls on your program. Because, especially Professor Smalls, because he worked with Muslim Mosque Incorporated with Brother Malcolm. He did. And he was mm-hmm. able to give us some very insight as to what actually happened back in those times. But um, what I see with, with Brother Malcolm and versus, as you said, with these leadership, these misleadership that we have right now and the straight path that they have led us down, if we would have stayed with what Brother Malcolm was doing, do for self, him, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Marcus Messiah Garvey, we would not have given up everything that we had in this sham called integration and be in such a destitute position that we are in right now. Because we would have had, do for self, we would not have given it all up in order to sit on a bus, eat in a restaurant, and do all of these things, integrate with these people, and at the same time while you're integrating with them, you have neglected yourself in order to feel comfortable with these people. 
and this is where black people have, have found ourselves. And trying to elect a black face and put them into a high place is not going to solve the problem for us. It is mm-hmm. always economics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're you're absolutely right. One of the things that we don't recognize uh, in our current administration, these people are simply imperialist. Yes. They are operating in no no other fashion than any other imperial government has operated in the history of the world, in the history of the United States. You are very right, Janice, because as I keep saying over and over, we are going down this same path again. We have this black man who came in there and set up AFRICOM in Djibouti. He has allowed um, the Sudan to be split into two countries. He has moved on Libya, trying to assassinate sovereign leadership. Now they are moving on Syria, Yemen, and Iran is in their crosshairs. We're going to find ourselves in a world of hurt, and all it is mm-hmm, is that he's mm-hmm. the front man. Now this mess going on with Israel, where they have, they, they're not even going to listen to him. Because, first of all, if we look at our history, as I said repeatedly, Janice, Israel, to start off with, if you go back and you look when Israel first started up, they wanted to, to put Israel in Uganda. That's where they wanted mm-hmm. to claim to put, to put Israel. So it shows you that these people didn't give a darn about um, geography. Mm-hmm. All they wanted was a piece of land where these Europeans could come and sit their butt on and claim that this is our homeland. They want to put it in Uganda. The British said, hell no. If you go back and look at look what Theodore Herzl, the starter of the Zionist movement that founded in um, Israel, and they said mm-hmm. no. Then they but see, one there. of the things, this is why it's so important to have a portion of, and I would suggest to all of you out there, if you have not, there is a, 19, a May 1990 panel discussion about Malcolm X, and if I can find it, I'll post it in our uh, chat room and I'll announce it, um, the URL, which really talks about the redeeming value of of Pan-Africanism for African-American people. Because Mm -hmm. one of the things that Malcolm taught us, Malcolm taught us that we have to stand up as a African people and say, forget about their foreign policy. And I've been saying this, forget about their domestic policy. We have to stand up and say, this is our policy. Yep. And stop being afraid of saying I'm not a democrat, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a liberal, I'm not a progressive. I am a pan-africanist black nationalist. I am a pan-africanist socialist. Whatever. But you cannot fight the power be trying to identify with the power. You are very that is right. the lesson that we that we get. That is the liberation, the the fundamental of the uh, liberation uh, lessons from Malcolm. You are right, Jenny, so, because it should not matter. Because look at these Israelis or these Jews, as they call themselves. It don't matter they where they are in the world. They, they are guaranteed. you know, one of the things we don't understand. Uh, and, and I hate to keep uh, um, uh, interrupting you, but you're 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 right on it, Sarah. We don't understand 
that our power is in binding together with the people who serve who are who 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 share our interests our racial interests our political interests you and, you are right because i get so upset when i hear people black people in this country come up and say i ain't left nothing in africa I ain't going back there. I ain't got nothing on. America is my home. I'm an American and all this not. I said, you know what? I said, if these Native Americans would go back to their original deeds and said, you know what? I don't give a darn how long y'all been here. Y'all are on land that's not yours. I want everybody to get off this land. What are you mm-hmm. going to say then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is that every people, every ethnic people who have stood together have power because we have not stood with Africa and Haiti. We have no power. And every one of those groups that have had power who said, you owe us reparations, the Japanese, the Mm -hmm. Jews, they got reparations. And we stand around and say, oh, they're never going to give us reparations. Yep, self-fulfilling prophecy, because if we are still saying we American taxpayers are paying for these Israelis, Germany caused that disaster to these people. If anything, Germany should be the one putting the bill alone to, um, to fund these Jews. And maybe some of these Americans, like the Bush family, who were involved in the chemicals and IBM, who were the numbering system for the Jews in a concentration camp, they should come up with some money for it. But all American taxpayers have been paying for over 65 years, have been paying for that piece of real estate um, in Africa that they are calling Israel, which technically, if they go by the Bible boundaries of it, that property that they call Israel, it should have been somewhere out there where Iran, Iraq is situated. It should not be where the Palestinians are if you go by the original map in the Bible. But you see, the thing is... There are some basic things, and for those people who are listening who don't have time to understand about Pan-Africanism or black nationalism, I will break it down for you. We can can win our liberation from this economic and political oppression if we will do one thing, and that is organize. And you cannot organize if you don't belong to an organization. You're right. That's the forefront. That's what the name organization. One of the first things that Malcolm understood when Elijah Muhammad made the, uh, offered him the exit out of the nation of Islam is that he had to have an organization. And you are right. And what's one of the first thing that he said? He said we need to put aside our ideology, our religious ideology, and look at ourselves as just being black Pan-Africanists. Period. Don't forget being exactly. Muslim, exactly. Baptist, whatever. Put all of that yep. stuff up because these are artificial constructs. And this it's is ab- what is holding absolutely. black people back because they don't want to come to an organization. The Nation of Islam is on, oh, these are Muslims. I'm not a Muslim. I'm a Baptist. And I don't want to care what they have to say or who's going to lead the prayer. And all this foolishness that they come up with to divide us. You're, you're absolutely right. Sarah, I'm going to ask you to uh, either hold on. Uh, I need to get to this this next clip. Oh, please, please, um, please. Um, I, I'll, I'll hold and I'll, I'll listen on the line. So you go right ahead. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And uh, we're going to go to the second part uh, of Lost Warriors, which takes Malcolm 
to his first trip to Mecca. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad says, if you don't want us to go home, the government doesn't want the black people to become involved in a mass exodus away from this country, eastward, give us a separate territory here, not a state. I've never heard Mr. Muhammad say a state or three states. I've only heard him say several states, some states, as many as we need. And we'll need more than you realize. This is one thing that worried him sometimes. He used to say, later on, if I'm dead or something, he said, people are going to think that I'm what they saw on television. He said, that's, they're going to think <laughs> that that's, that's the... Because he said, the, the press and the media always takes out the part that shows me as if I'm some defiant, someone that's uh, ready to jump on someone all the time, a radical. So they pick out those parts to show. And but they said they never know the real me, which was which was a, really a gentle person. He was a very he was very sensitive to people, and he was very observant and perceptive. And as a result of this, um, it brought out a part of him that you wouldn't see ordinarily unless you happen to be. I have it and the opportunity to be close to him or travel with him or be in his presence other than when he was before the public. Because when he came before the public, he was a warrior. We're trapped. We know no way out. So we get a wine bottle. We get a whiskey bottle. Or we stick a needle in our arm. Or we smoke pot, trying to find an escape from the hell that the white man has given us for 400 years here in America. So this is a false escape. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad is offering a real escape. A, not, not only a, a real estate, but a real escape right here on this earth. He says that the government itself is responsible for the poverty that makes you and me turn to alcohol, to dope, and to crime. The government is responsible for the bad housing conditions that exist here in Harlem. The government is responsible for the rats that bite our little children and the cockroaches that eat better than we do. The government is responsible. The government is responsible for the bad food that's sold here in Harlem at the highest prices. The government is responsible. Nobody responsible but the United States government. So all of the, the one who is the author of all of the vice, all of the immorality, all of these uh, criminal acts of indecency that take place in our community, don't look for the author in Harlem. Go downtown and look for him in City Hall. The one that's posing as your friend by day and responsible for your drunken condition by night. The one who's posing as your friend downtown, but who's uh, the responsible for your unemployed and poorly housed condition uptown. And brothers and sisters, 
If you don't find him in City Hall, look for him in Albany, in the State House. Or look for him in Washington, in the White House. I'll show you the man that's responsible for your problem. He got blonde hair, he got blue eyes, and he got pale skin. Some of them standing behind you. Some of them standing in front of you. Some of them standing on the side of you. Some of them in uniform and some of them out of uniform. Those are the ones responsible for it. His oratory, he was an orator that was not equal during that period of time. His tactics... That's a broad statement. That was not, not equal. equal during that period of time, yes. Uh, and he you've heard them all. Yes, I've heard uh, Martin Luther King. I, I've always thought of Dr. King as a, the best orator from the academy. That is, who had been trained uh, to be an orator, who had had exposure, who had a doctor's degree. But Malcolm X, on the other hand, had a bit more flexibility. Malcolm X could speak to Dr. King or he could speak to street people. They call Mr. Muhammad a hate teacher because he makes your hate dope and alcohol. They call Mr. Muhammad a black supremacist because he teaches you and me not only that we're as good as the white man, but better than the white man. Yes, better than the white man. You are better than the white man. And that's not saying anything. That's not saying, you ain't, you know where just to be equal with him. Who is he to be equal with? You look at his skin. You can't compare your skin with his skin. Why, your skin looks like gold beside his skin. One of the most brilliant persons that I've ever met who did not have a doctor's degree, but who was much more brilliant than many scientists, theologians, uh, you, you name it. Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, man is judged by his conscious behavior, and the conscious behavior collectively of the white race toward non-white people has been a, the type of behavior that is uh, practiced only by a devil or devils. So then, in essence, you feel that white men, per se, are devils. He teaches us that God told him that the white race is a race of devils. Teaching this kind of a doctrine, a doctrine of hate, and a doctrine of uh, separationism is bound to inflame the passions of people, wouldn't you imagine? Uh, the deeds that the white man has committed against black people uh, is what is inflaming black people. There is no, no teaching inflames anyone. It's what you do to a man that uh, inflames him. And if the white man wants black people to love him, then he should do something to uh, warrant that love. The entire Negro population, the group feels the way you do about it. I think they're probably more than willing to uh, live, take their share of the uh, world that's available to them and uh, enjoy themselves in it. How about you? I know, If he doesn't think that very many Negroes think like I do, then he is being mighty naive. Do you think that Negroes are going to continue to live in a society where dogs can be sick on them at will and not do something about it? You're out of your mind. Is there anyone here that would like to comment after having heard what Mr. X said? <laughs> no, I didn't.
How about you, sir? Would you like to comment? I um I don't agree with him because I'm not a follower of Muhammad myself. I think that uh, there are every people, uh, all people have been mistreated in some form or another. But um, I don't agree with him. I don't follow Muhammad. I don't think anyone should follow one man. I think they should follow their own conscience. I think the main problem of most Negroes is that they feel sorry for themselves, and I think that this keeps them back uh, much more than they would be if they didn't feel so sorry for themselves. If Martin Luther King, Roy Wilkins, or any of these uh, compromising Negroes who say exactly what the white man wants to hear is interviewed anywhere in the country, you don't get anybody to offset what they say. But whenever a black man stands up and says something that white people don't like, then the first thing that white man does is run around to try and find somebody to say something to, to uh, offset what has just been said. This is natural, but it is done. Against Malcolm. I don't think that was self-generated. Um, he was continuously being preyed upon. His mind was continuously being preyed upon. By? By members of his family and other of the laborers or, or officials that read that were close to him. And they were continuously feeding his mind and turning him against Malcolm. Feeding his mind with everything they could. They would turn him against Malcolm. But his uh, officials and his family there in Chicago were the ones who were jealous. They were opportunists more than anything else. And, and, they, and they didn't see the chance to exercise this as long as he was around. So what began to happen? Um, anything they could find that they could report back to headquarters that might make him look... Uh, and that is the second part of our presentation tonight at Our Common Ground of the loss of our warriors as we evaluate and look at the liberation lessons from Malcolm X. Our number is 347-838-9852. And when we come back, we're going to take your calls and get your response about what all of this means to you, what you think. Uh, are the liberation lessons from Malcolm X, whether or not we have the capacity today to figure out how we begin to discipline ourselves. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Janice Graham, thanking you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground, asking you to support the Black Report Agenda. Get a subscription. Stop by blackagendareport.com. Our friends Glenn Ford and Bruce Dixon are listening for you. Support the news that you can use. The Black Agenda Report. Join us here at Our Common Ground in our effort to keep them, to support what they do. Support all independent media. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. 
Word up. Hi, this is Maya, and you are listening to Our Common Ground, Janet Grimm, talk radio that matters. Harriet Tubman, respect. Malcolm X, respect. W.E.B., Du Bois, respect. Reverend Martin Luther King, respect. Sojourner Truth, respect. Word up, it's all about respect. My life was going downhill fast. Everybody was on my case. Now, I kept hoping that life would change real soon. I knew drinking too much messed up my life. A friend suggested I check out AA. It worked. I found myself in an AA group. Finally, I've got my act together. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Check your phone book, newspaper, or AA.org. The only thing that I regret in all of this is that two black groups have to fight and kill each other off. Elijah Muhammad could stop the whole thing tomorrow just by raising his hand. Really, he could. He could stop the whole thing by raising his hand. But he won't. He doesn't love black people. He doesn't even love his own followers, proof of which they're killing each other. They killed one in the brown. They shot another one in the brown. They tried to get six of us uh, uh, Sunday morning, and uh, the pattern has developed across the country. The man has gone insane, absolutely out of his mind. Besides, you can't be 70 years old and surround yourself by a handful of 16, 17, 18-year-old girls and keep your right mind. You can't do it. What have you got to say about it? Did you teach Malcolm? Did you make Malcolm? Did you clean up Malcolm? Did you put Malcolm out before the world? Was Malcolm your traitor or was he out? And if we dealt with him like a nation deals with a traitor, what the hell business is it of yours? Tonight, the Nation of Islam is reacting with anger to allegations that have put its leader under fire. Those sensational charges are in a story we told you about exclusively on News 4 New York last night. The widow of Malcolm X is accusing Louis Farrakhan of involvement in Malcolm's assassination. Thank you so much for being with us here at Our Common Ground. And of course, joining me tonight as a co-host is Alpha of the Alpha Show and Truth Works Network, which broadcasts each Saturday, 3 p.m. I'm Janice Brown. And we thank you. Our number is 347-838-9852. We're going to go to our phones. 954, you're on the air. I respect you, Hotep. Hotep and Sabaha Her, Madam Janice Graham. This is Orande. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Orande, how are you? Hey, my brother. How you doing, Sensei? Listen, uh, the main thing, first of all, we see the foolishness of the teachings of Christianity. The world didn't end today, right? That's that's one mm-hmm. point of ignorance and foolishness. And I was having a little bit of fun with Alpha earlier today about it. 
Malcolm X and Hajj Malik Shabazz said the key word, action. You can plan and you can have outline, but it takes action, which is why Garvey was successful to his point and the Nation of Islam was successful to their point. Let me We've let me been... stop you there right right there because you've made a critical point and it's a critical point in the life and who Malcolm was. Most people don't realize that Malcolm's father and mother were Garveyites. He yes, grew up so, as a so child my grandfather. as a Garveyite. And let me so share this the notion was, So was Elijah of... Muhammad. He was a follower of Marcus Garvey, too. Let me make this point, um, Aranda, because a lot of our listeners may not understand. So, you know, most people think that um, Malcolm went to prison illiterate and he had never studied. Uh, He didn't know and understand the issue of black resistance and black liberation, but he grew up as a child. Uh, It is suspected and speculated that his father was killed because of his Garvey teachings in in, uh, Oklahoma. So uh, um, Malcolm had a spirit of liberation from the time that he was born. Oh, I'm aware of that. Nebraska, because of the teaching, wasn't it? those teachings, mm-hmm. it was ingrained in him that he had to be a resistor. I just wanted to make that point. Thank you, Aranda, for letting, for allowing me to uh, interrupt. Oh, I always point. appreciate listening to what you and this blog talk forum has with you in India and Alpha and people who do come to the table with great input. Tony and a whole lot of folks, cow man, information man. But um, we, at this point in time, cannot assert ourselves, especially with all these disasters that are just happening. And I'm not going to make this like the prime thing. When you're that wiped out, it's almost hard to deal with the realities of dealing with voting and trying to teach one and all this sort of stuff. We're in a, such a condition right now that it's almost beyond repairable. Those of us who are willing to get the hell up out of this scene, like myself, you know, and I got no problems because I don't have no great love for America. I don't. I belong to the planet Earth. America has run its course with me. As far as I'm concerned, I watched my grandfather, my father, I was dealing with the Nation of Islam before I went overseas to Southeast Asia, you know, so I'm very much aware of what happened and how we've been duped and tricked into destroying ourselves and all of that. And Malcolm was no fool because a lot of uh, collegiate scholars want to make us believe that he went over to Mecca and all of a sudden he got la di dadi and that he realized that um, we're all human beings. He, he understood that. He understood that very well, well. One of the things, one of the things, there are two very important things that happened to him in his first 
trip to Mecca and in in when he did his Hajj. Two mm-hmm. things, two very important things that he affirmed his Pan Africanism. He yeah. learned more about who he was in Islam and as a Muslim. And that did change him. It changed the way he thought about him as himself in a spiritual way. He understood how much he had been misled about true Islam. Yeah, and I know what you're saying. I I truly know what you're saying about that. That undergird his commitment to Pan-Africanism. Okay. You know, for instance, uh, if you study Malcolm, you understand that it was not until he prepared for his Hajj and he had his interview in front of the Hajj court that he didn't understand the history of Arabs in Africa. And when he got that straight, I think that it was such an affirming time for him in his commitment to African peoples across the globe. And it came out of a deeper understanding of himself as a Muslim man. And I think that this whole notion that we have, you're absolutely right. People think that he went to he went to Mecca and he was converted into some kind of um <clears throat> some kind of compromise. He was not. He had a stronger commitment not to compromise the principles of human rights. Yes. Let me ask you a question, Aranya. You, you and I are the first. Uh, we we are the gener. I call myself a child mm-hmm. of Malcolm. I was able to study Malcolm when he was living. Um, I hone my reading skills on Muhammad speaks uh, and the Pittsburgh Courier. And Malcolm was much like, you know how kids follow a cartoon character? Well, Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I followed Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, Adam Clayton Powell, uh, Thurgood Marshall, and Martin Luther King. Those were my cartoon characters that I had to follow and read newspapers in order to follow the story. And I came away with lessons. What was the most important lesson to you in the living life of Malcolm? Well, first of all, I was born in 52. So I got to hear Malcolm twice up front. And the most important lesson at that time was him, the Nation of Islam, Adam Clayton Powell, Judge Bruce Wright, cut him loose, Bruce. I don't know if you remember him. Mm-hmm, I do. I do. This I was do during know. Lindsay's time. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. Mayor Lindsay of New York at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a kid when Wagner was the mayor, and then Lindsay came in and then beamed. So what was happening with that? The lessons that I've learned, and I was looking to get involved with that, but 
my people were Jehovah's Witnesses and Baptists and all this sort of stuff, and they were against it because they were afraid. But my grandfather, who was a Garveyite, that came with the lessons, even before I was really able to comprehend what the nation of Islam was about, you know, I was getting teachings from my granddaddy, my father's father, about Garvey and what was becoming at that point and how that got destroyed. You know, so when Elijah Muhammad and that whole genre of Nation of Islam of North America came into reality. So what was the, the lessons lesson that I've learned? Uh-huh. I've got a lot of material I've learned, covered tonight. Mm-hmm. All right. The lessons that I've learned was about being that kind of discipline. And during, you know, the draft was happening, and cats were either going to Canada or going to jail or went. You know, so mm-hmm. the disciplines were you kind of – Went into that situation. You either got down with the underground stuff, whether it had been the uh, the Nation, the, the Panthers, the Black Liberation Army, the whole bit, or you went to Nam and learned something to c- try to come back and overthrow this shit in America. And that was mm-hmm. the mindset I was in at that time. Mm-hmm. So that was the lesson. And then when Malcolm got assassinated, the Audubon, I was getting ready on my way up there. There was two incidences that happened. When King got stabbed, I was on my way to see him on Lenox Avenue, and then when Malcolm got assassinated, you know, in 65 in February, and when King got stabbed on a, on a, between 117th and uh, 15th Street around there, you know, Lenox Avenue. So it was very uh, mind-blowing and kind of disturbing, but I also realized how we've been pitted against each other the way we are right now and today. And the commonality, as far as this government goes, with these two evil sources of, of uh, the, uh, politicians, Democrats and Republicans, is now it's pitted against the masses in one thing. And that, that cycle has been going on and on. So what I've learned from that, Janice, is that the discipline and the tenacity that it takes to deal with that, and you ain't got to be incarcerated to get that. A black man would go to jail back in them times, up until the 60s, get educated, get more strong. There's no homosexual bullshit came out of that trip. These cats went in, they came out, not all of them, but uh, the few percent that had was very valuable and good to the community that they did try to organize stuff that set up people like Jesse Jackson and uh, uh, mm-hmm. Randall Robinson and these cats, you know, that, that, that were paved the way because you have folks that were willing to get out there and take action. When we had riots every summer in, in Howard Beach, you know, in Far Rockaway and this sort of stuff, and the fight for the New York City Transit Authority and to have the cops, NYPD, blacks to become on the police department because you had all these supremacist idiots that lived out in Long Island and New Rochelle and Westchester County that didn't live in these communities that had to come there with their contempt and their hatred and police this area and take out their their mm-hmm. hostilities and, you know, keep the drugs going and the heroin going so people could not listen to a Malcolm X or Elijah Muhammad. They'd rather so have that drug thing happening than to have a nation of Islam who is probably outside of Marcus Garvey, 
was the only other entity in this damn country that redeemed black people as a massive movement. Mm -hmm. And they know that. You know, one of the things that we have to come to grips with, too, about Malcolm is to look at the mistakes that he made. I, I I, I, I often think about the hate that hate produced, the show that was produced by um, Mike Wallace, who wasn't, it was, there was no 60 Minutes at the time, and it was the first time the nation had ever really seen Malcolm. I mean, Malcolm was Detroit, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Hartford, Springfield, Massachusetts, and Washington, D.C., when he was the minister of Temple Number 23, I think, in Washington, D.C. But up until that show, which was a big mistake, and I, for the, and, and I can only say he was a young leader who made mistakes. That was one of them. Um, and the other was to strike out so vilely at civil rights leaders in the South, because he had not really penetrated uh, with his message in the South. Uh, and to call call out Asa Randolph and James Farmer and Roy Wilkins in the way so publicly when we know that that's what they want they want us to fight each other and I don't think he 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 really learned that lesson until a couple of years later. Aronde, I've got to go because I got to get. Well, I just want to say this brief. What he did learn in addition to that was, first of all, you don't go against your teachings and your leader, but reality dictates human beings are human beings. But if your mm -hmm. teacher and your teachings have got you to a point, this is what Malcolm did grasp. He did learn that. That's why he was able to embrace King and James Farmer in them you know, but that reactionary thing was necessary at that time, and I understand it very well, even to this well, day. Well, still I, needed. I, I understand it because he was trying to break through with the message of black nationalism. But at the same time, it was very harmful um, uh, in ways that we didn't understand until after the Freedom Riders. So, Aranda, oh, thank you, Janice. So I appreciate this moment. Thank you so much for your call, and I do want to talk about that. I, I also want to make a note about Malcolm X exit from the Nation of Islam. And I've talked to Minister Farrakhan personally uh, and some um, Minister um, Dr. Akbar in Washington, D.C., about this issue in the past on this show. And that is that the Nation of Islam was an organization that needed tremendous discipline and had a central authority. And um, Malcolm understood that because he was part of that central authority. And he broke a code of conduct. Um, and um, it's more complicated than that simple answer. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're going to take uh, 10 minutes for a second segment of Our Lost Warrior. Uh, in a bad light, they would do it. Do you think that might have been goaded and fed by 
infiltrators within the oh, nation. Sure, no question about it. I think that Mr. Hoover was at work, other government agencies were at work, and there were persons, I'm sure there were some rich Americans and rich persons from other parts who, who saw him as a threat to the capitalist system. And as a result of this, uh, perhaps had their own people in there goading, disrupting. I think it would not have been too difficult to have had people there at Elijah Muhammad's side, people who were not true believers, but who were there saying, look what Malcolm is doing. Malcolm is, act, is acting like he's the leader, and that you aren't the leader, sir. And uh, if you're beginning to grow in age, and you hear people telling you this, it takes a good deal of strength that you may not have to resist seeing Malcolm not as the friend that he truly was and I can attest to, but as an enemy who was trying to take over the throne. None of them had ever been the friend or been the servant to Messenger Elijah Muhammad that Malcolm had been. And they weren't trying to help uh, the messenger in doing that. They were trying to cut Malcolm off from him and get him out of the way so that they could, uh, in their opportunist way, take advantage of the situation. Did you have a sense that Elijah was envious of Malcolm? Well, I think there's no doubt that he was envious of Malcolm. Uh, this, unfortunately, is a part of the history of mankind. Uh, in the jungles, we have it in animals. We have the old boar who no longer can uh, procreate and the young boar is there coming along. First he fights him off, tries to knock him out so he's not with the herd anymore. And then he's gone. In humanity we have the people who are in power. And then there's that bright young person who's coming along. They feel that the person in power feels that he or she is going to be disposed of. Uh, they fight. And they keep the person from rising. The old, unfortunately, sometimes don't want the young to rise up and be powerful because they're afraid of being displaced. I think certainly there's no question in my mind that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad was unhappy with the power of Malcolm X. Uh, he called me up from Chicago one day, you know, and he told me, he said, I want you to meet me at the airport. He said, I'm on the way out back to the East Coast. He was in, he was in Chicago. He said, I'm on my way back to the East Coast, but there's something I want to talk to you about before I go there. So I've, I'll get my ticket in a way where I can stop off and lay over in Detroit for a, a short time. And uh, when I went, so I met him at the airport, and he looked like he was sick. He was just, he just couldn't seem to get himself together. I never saw him in that condition. Um, and he told me what he had found out. Very simply, Malcolm learned that Elijah had made at least a half a dozen of his personal secretaries pregnant. This shook Malcolm to the bone, because Malcolm's devotion to Elijah was based upon Malcolm's complete belief and acceptance in Elijah's high moral code. By having confidence in the leader of the Muslim movement, if someone came to me, and I had no knowledge whatsoever of what had taken place, and they told me what I'm saying, I would kill them, myself. The only thing that would prevent me from killing someone who made a statement like this, they would have to be able to let me know that it's true. Now, if anyone had come to me other than Mr. Muhammad's son, I never would have believed it even enough to look into it. But I had been around him so closely, I had seen indications of its, of its uh, 
of the reality of it, but my religious sincerity made me block it out of my mind. I said, you have been so busy that you just haven't had time to listen to anything. I said, nobody was going to tell you. I said, I wasn't going to tell you because the first thing you would have done was went back to the Chicago and because that's where he was. He would, use, he would name names, who said it, and everything. And, uh, and you had to put somebody on the spot because they were trying to pull his coat, as he might call it. On November 22nd of 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated, and Malcolm made some comments about that assassination. Elijah Muhammad sentenced Malcolm to 90 days of silence for those comments. Well, Malcolm accepted that verdict. And during that period of 90 days, Malcolm X sent a constant stream of letters to Elijah. At the same time, however, he sensed the importance of having some record of these letters that he was sending to Elijah, so he locked himself up in motel rooms on several occasions and tape-recorded these letters. Dear Holy Apostle, one of the main reasons people want to divide you and me is because they know Allah has blessed me to be your best representative as well as your best defender. The only ones here who may think I'm against you are those who are not really with you themselves. This is a dangerous position to be in because it only adds division upon division. I know now how Isaac felt when Abraham took him upon the mountain to sacrifice him. Only love for his father made him submit silently to what looked like certain death. I know how Job felt when everyone was looking at him wondering what sin he had committed. His worst pain must have come from his inability to open his mouth and explain the real reason for his condition. As I told you, I've been working on these notes I've taken during conversations with you during the past ten years. Whenever I feel lonely, forsaken, or even angry, I go back to the words of wisdom and healing in these notes. There is both hope and life in your words. With Allah's help and your permission, I can turn out a book about your life, your teachings, your work, and the program that will bring tears to your eyes and would not only go a long way toward waking up the dead nation, but would also add to the financial needs of the nation. I do it just like I was working for you, but would actually ask nothing in return. I've received my pay from you already a millionfold. If you would have mercy upon me and give me another chance, I'd stay out of the public. I'd be satisfied to just minister in the mosque, making no public statements, nor outside speeches. He began to doubt if his meal was even getting through. He felt like somebody there was receiving that mail and getting it, and it wasn't getting to the messenger. Because he would he continuously write to the messenger and tell him what he had heard and report to him uh, things that he thought he ought to make known, hoping to get some kind of guidance from the messenger as to how it should be handled. So, in other words, he tried to send the olive branch to Elijah, but many around Elijah intercepted it intercepted it in order to keep that from taking place they didn't want to see that and he still found himself not reinstated into the nation of islam malcolm realized that he had been silenced for reasons other than his kennedy statement if you notice they uh use their newspaper to slander me and to label me as a hypocrite and uh, as a rebel and mr muhammad himself said that i defected well in reality i never even left the muslim movement they put me out so he decided to stay out of the nation of Islam, and he struck out on his own. Yet, he, in his public pronouncement at least, refused to attack Elijah Muhammad. In fact, he openly voiced his support and continued belief in Elijah. 
I'm a believer in the Honorable Elijah and follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I'm still a Muslim. My religion is Islam. I run into some obstacles in the nation of Islam, and I feel that I can best serve the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's purpose and program and carry into uh, existence what I feel, I understand, concerning his objectives better on the outside than I can on the inside. And, and now that I have the independence of action, it's my intention to work with everybody or against everybody, whatever the case may be, to try and get some kind of immediate solution to the problems that are confronting our people. I told him then, I said, the best thing for you to do is get, take your family and leave here. Go to Africa or anywhere and let this thing cool down. Uh, immediately I saw the need for a base. And so, uh, since I am a Muslim, and I knew that I could never stand up in public and represent Mr. Muhammad anymore, and at the same time, I didn't at that time want to say why I couldn't represent him, I knew, as his son told me, uh, Wallace Muhammad, that the only salvation for the Muslims, they would have to turn toward the orthodox religion of Islam. And it was Mr. Muhammad's son, Wallace Muhammad, who encouraged me to make the pilgrimage to Mecca and get myself orient oriented or orientated into the knowledge of the orthodox religion of Islam. And at the same time, since I was a nationalist, I had to have a better knowledge of what the attitude of Africans uh, was toward our people in this country, so I made a tour through the African nations. In Egypt, I had an audience with President Gamal Abdel Nasser for uh, about an hour and a half. In Tanganyika, I spent three hours with Julius Nyeri. I flew from Tanganyika and Zanzibar to Kenya, with Prime Minister Jomo Kenyatta, who's now President Jomo Kenyatta, and Dr. Milton Obote, who will be Prime Minister of Uganda. And when I was in Nigeria, I had an audience with President Azikwe, and in uh, Ghana, I had an audience with President Kwame Nkrumah, and in uh, Guinea, I lived at President Sekou Touré's Oceanside home for three days. Nowhere that I went did I run into any closed minds or closed hearts or closed doors. I got a chance to speak to people at all levels, in government, in uh, religion, and just plain in the street. Lagon at the University of Ghana, where he gave his first speech the night, the first night he arrived. Vicki Garvin and Alice Wyndham, Julian Mayfield and I were able to set up a series of, of uh, uh, perform well, appearances. lectures, appearances. The first night, a number of people came prepared to have their fists balled up and their jaws clenched. Ghanaians. And Malcolm just simply told his story. And the people stood and shouted, and they weren't, there wasn't a full house. The next night, there was a full house. Two days later, there were overflow crowds in the street. Distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, 
our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. Recently, when I was blessed to make a trip or a pilgrimage, a religious pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca, where I met many people from all over the world, plus spent many weeks in Africa trying to broaden my own scope and get an open, more of an open mind to look at the problem as it actually is. One of the things that I realized, and I realized this even before going over there, was that the, our African brothers have gained their independence faster than you and I here in America have. They've also gained recognition and respect as human beings much faster than you and I. Just 10 years ago on the African continent, our people were colonized. They were suffering all forms of colonization, oppression, exploitation, degradation, humiliation, discrimination, and every other kind of Asian. And in uh, a short time, they have gained more independence, more recognition, more respect as human beings than you and I have. And you and I live in a country which is supposed to be the citadel of education, freedom, justice, democracy, and all of those other pretty sounding words. So it was our intention to try and find out what was our African brothers doing to get results so that you and I could study what they had done and perhaps gain from that study or benefit from their experiences. The purpose of our organization is to start right here in Harlem, which has the largest concentration of people of African descent that exists anywhere on this earth. There are more Africans here in Harlem than exist in any city on the African continent. Because that's what you and I are, Africans. The Organization of Afro-American Unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom, in the Irish neighborhood, or the Jewish neighborhood, or the Italian neighborhood, we need to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get their allies... It's time out for you and me to stop running away from the wolf right into the arms of the fox, looking for some kind of help. That's a drag. <laughs> Number two, Self-defense. Since self-preservation is the first law of nature, we assert the Afro-Americans' right to self-defense. The Constitution of the United States of America clearly affirms the right of every American citizen to bear arms. And, as Americans, we will not give up a single right guaranteed under the Constitution. The history, the history of unpunished violence against our people clearly indicates that we must be prepared to defend ourselves or we will continue to be a defenseless people at the mercy of a ruthless and violent racist and leaps and bounds following his second african trip he displayed a sophistication 
an understanding of the liberation struggles that were erupting on the African continent. For example, in the Congo upheavals, Malcolm attacked CIA tactics that had caused that nation's legitimately elected premier, Patrice Lumumba, to be deposed and then assassinated. Uh, Congolese have been massacred by white people in the Congo for years and years and years. And if uh, the shoe is now on the other foot, uh, only thing I can say is it's like chickens that always come back home to roost. Do you personally feel, though, that there's some shame or uh, involvement here or some guilt associated with the killing of other human beings? I think that the white people should be ashamed of the deplorable situation that has been existing in the Congo, which is not the fault of the Congolese, but which is the result of instigation by European powers who are fighting each other over the mineral wealth of the Congo. And now to make it appear that the Congolese themselves are criminals or brutes because they're reacting to these uh, uh, injustices that they've been victimized by is, is again ducking the question. I was with him in Detroit once. I remember him talking in Detroit about the fact that Lumumba had been killed and Tishambe had been used as a tool to overthrow him. He was talking at that time about the CIA. He was talking about how people in major powers use African leaders. And he was comparing this to use of American black leaders by presidents and CIA and others. Shombi is the murderer of Lumumba, who was the rightful prime minister of the Congo. Shombi is the man whose forces uh, fought against the United Nations forces and against the United States. And despite this criminal past of Shombi, uh, now the United States is backing Shombi, uh, who has hired uh, South African mercenaries, who are hired killers, to disrupt the uh, peaceful efforts of the freedom fighters from Stanleyville to uh, make the type of country there that they want. And it is this American support of Shombi, actually, that's at the root of the whole problem. He delivered a speech to his followers at the Audubon Ballroom that focused on an interesting part of his overseas trip, his stopovers in Paris and London. Perhaps more than any other speech, this one reveals a threat that Malcolm had come to pose to Western interests. I was invited to address the first Congress of the Council of African Organizations in London. They had a four-day Congress from the 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th, and had, had invited me there to make the closing address and bring the delegates from the various African organizations that are situated on the European continent up to date in regards to the struggle of the black man in this country in his quest for human rights and human dignity. And in conjunction with that inv invitation, I had gotten an invitation to visit Paris from the Afro-American community in Paris, which was sponsoring a rally in conjunction with the African community. And I was supposed to go there Tuesday also and address them and let them know the state of development or lack of development of our progress in this country for human rights or toward human rights. As many of you know, when I got to Paris, the man said I couldn't come in. Some man. French man. Uh, they gave me no explanation other than to say, we have our orders. They wouldn't let me phone the American Embassy, and they tried to imply that the American Embassy was behind it, which I told them that I didn't know de Gaulle had become a satellite of Lyndon B. Johnson. 
I knew that Kennedy had made a satellite out of Khrushchev and half the and Britain and half of these other countries, but I didn't think that France was a satellite of the United States. Well, this made them angry. Thank you for being with us here at our common ground. Our lines are open three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm listening for you. Black Voice Collaborative at TruthWorks Network. Tuesdays, A Heart for My People with Dr. Deborah Napier. Thursdays, Fearless Mother with Denise Bowles. And on Friday, it's India Declare After Dark, Real, Raw, and Right Now. On Saturday, it's Just Damn Radio with Alpho of the Alpho Show. TruthWorks Network at Blog Talk Radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative. For the TruthWorks programming schedule, go to truthworks.ning.com. Well, Janice, there is one thing that I found that is similar from the clip that you played, from the last two clips that you played, is this this modus operandi, this of how you deal with both people of dissension and how people who they want to bring down, how they were dealt with. And it basically brings itself to the same. They're dealt with the same. They use the same MO. And that 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 is so troubling because from what Malcolm has decried to a point of how uh, the white man infiltrated, uh, vilified, demonized, uh, spread rumors and that's the same way they went after Malcolm. And they continued to go after Malcolm that way until they brought him down. But Malcolm facilitated a great deal. He enabled them. You know, I had a discussion with you about how the how Malcolm basically he stopped the searches at the door, so he enabled them to enter uh, the ballroom with weapons. And he, he, to me, he basically, uh, like he was tired of the constant conflict and looking over his shoulder, and he simply gave in to the, you know, to the inevitable. So that was my take on it. Janice? 
I'm sorry. Um, I have been doing a lot of coughing, so I had um, a, a lot of. Um, I had my I had my mic on on mute, and I was doing a lot of talking. And we thank you for being with us here on this Our Common Ground Saturday night. Uh, we are exploring, relearning, reliving, um, and preparing ourselves to teach the lesson to teach and to live the lessons of liberation given to us by Malcolm X. But Alpha, in response to you, there is no doubt that both the the nation of Islam at the time that Malcolm was part of the nation, um, as well as after he left the nation of Islam, there was an extreme infiltration of FBI and surveillance of both the nation as well as the organization of African-American unity. And the government is implicitly involved in the planning and the execution of the assassination of Malcolm X. Two of the major characters who are pointed to as part of the planning and the implementation of the assassination are people who simply have disappeared off the face of the earth. And as a result of a lot of discussion about Manning, Dr. Manning Marable's a new book, Malcolm X, a Reinvention of, of the Life of Malcolm X, the Justice Department is now considering reopening the investigation because of information that has been uprooted in that book in the assassination of Malcolm X. For those of you who are listening, one of the things I, I do want to say that this has got to be a theme that we carry around with us always. If you have children or grandchildren, you must teach them not only about the life of this man as an iconic figure, but as the life of this man who, I mean, can you imagine, Alpha? Um, he, he did a lot of traveling. And in the very young, his very young years of recruiting for the Nation of Islam, they were doing a lot of driving. Driving from New York to Chicago, from Chicago to Detroit, from Detroit to New York, from Detroit, from Chicago to Los Angeles. That was an awful lot of sac personal sacrifice because of the di discipline of commitment. And those are the things that we have to begin to tell our children. And I'm talking about these children on the street with Malcolm X medallions around their necks and AK-64s under their jackets. Can we talk for real here? But when you say that, when you say that he helped, I don't buy that. They needed no help. This government had decided that this was a man who was talking about the liberation and freedom of African Americans in America 
and he was getting becoming an international force of both ethnic organization as well as political influence. He understood how the system worked. That's how brilliant this Malcolm was. We've only got about 15 minutes, and we're going to take your calls at 347-838-9852 to talk about the whole notion of whether or not we have power. We have, in my opinion, extensive power. It simply is not organized. But we have got to understand that the very act of organization is a form of resistance. Our number is 347-838-9852. As we talk about and, and really embrace the notion. I mean, how how many of you really do take the notion of affirmation, of liberation and resistance seriously? While we deify Malcolm, how many of us are willing to really say, I am going to live like Malcolm. I am going to make sure that my children understand the kind of man this was, the kind of person. He was a reader, a researcher. He understood history. He understood the people for whom he walked with. And that is something that we don't have. You know, every any time an elected official in this country black, white, or otherwise, takes a walk on the corner, they've got media with them. And this was a man who challenged us to know our history and to know how we got our name. I mean, that is one of the most powerful things. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. We're here every Saturday night, and we're going to ask you, and we've been asking you to support the Black Agenda Report by becoming a subscriber. Bruce Dixon and Glenn Ford are two warriors who are working on our behalf, making sure that we have unfiltered truth before us as we look at our community. At Our Common Ground, we suggest that the path to power is knowledge. And we encourage you to share black history with a child, your child, a child in the neighborhood, a child in the neighborhood school. But share our history. If you don't know where you've been, if you don't know where you've come from, then you don't know where you're headed. Share our history. Pass it on. And thank you for being with us tonight. I think it's so important for us to share and know our history. It is our roadmap. 
Um, and, you know, one of the things that, um, I mean, we have the tools. Uh, I talk about the Black Agenda Report, our friends, um, Bruce Dixon and, and Glenn Ford, but we all also have the Black Commentator. We I suggest that we have the griot because we're still night after night getting information that simply does not reflect a black agenda that is suitable and fits the circumstances under which black people live in this country. And I, I you know, I, I'm I'm ready to hear Alpha, I'm ready to hear some from somebody who says they think they're free. Come on with it. If you think you're black and you're free, if you think that the notion that somehow what happens with the stock market is going to affect what happens with your real future, you know, we have to even define and frame what what is our future, Alpha? What do we, when we say the future? Is it filled with a sense that we are free to be you and me? Do we see the signs that in the United States of America, black people have been living in a police state? Do we see that as it is connected to um, other forms of violence across the globe? How is that different from women who are raped by um, uh, men who use rape as a tool of war in Darfur? How is it different when we have policemen who get paid to shoot black people, black children, in the back? I I do want to play, I I won't have time to, but my friend Damu, Smith, who is with the ancestors now, had some wonderful, wonderful things to say about what Malcolm X means. We won't be able to get through it all, but I do want to get through some of it, and we are appreciative of all of you who have joined us uh, tonight. We do want to let you know that um, we've got to do better. We've got to value what we know and ensure that we pass it on. Uh, in our community today, when the, the balance of nature is being altered in our community, you know, it used to be uh, in our community and, and in the world where um, the young people uh, buried old people. In our community today, old people are burying young people. We are burying crack babies. Uh, we are burying a young a black males between the ages of 19 and 35 who are shooting each other. And their grandparents and their mothers and fathers are burying them. The balance of nature in our community is being fundamentally altered. That is a serious thing that we need to look at. And when I look at the fact that the people who sit up here during the city council sessions, some of the people who sit here represent, and I have to be frank among friends, 
very reactionary ideas yeah. about how to deal with the crisis facing our community. You know, uh, Malcolm would not be advocating sending the National Guard to Southeast. Uh, he would not be advocating today uh, curfewing our young people. Uh, he would not be advocating uh, throwing our young people in prison and throwing away the key, leaving them in there forever. Uh, he would not be advocating uh, punishing our young people. You see, when people are traditional politicians with no principles, they will advocate things to get votes because they have no principles. And you see, Malcolm was a man who had principles. He would never do that to get votes because he never understood politics that way. That politics had to be something that was derived from the soul and the heart, the commitment that grew out of the struggle of our people and the belief that we had to be liberated from the bowels of the oppressive society in which we live. If you believe that we must be liberated from the oppressive bowels of the society in which we live, you would not advocate sending in more people with guns to arrest and round up our young people. Listen, our young people have been neglected institutionally by the society. They have been... And that is what Damu Smith had to say. We've only, only got one more minute because I do want to end our show tonight by thanking all of you, our callers, Aronde and Sarah, who have been with us, and to ask you to pass it on. We need to increase this um, this audience as much as we can. 610, you're on the air. I respect you very quickly. You have one minute. Oh, uh, yes, Brother Brock, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Hotep. Hello, Brother Good Brock, evening. Hotep, my brother. And to you and yours and uh, the other host, Alpha, and the listening audience, I'll just make it very, very, very brief. I do believe, to answer your question, we do have plenty of power as people of color, and obviously we do not yield even 50% of the power we could. And yeah. obviously we could get wiped out completely if we did yield all the power we could muster. So because of that uh, scared part within the majority of us, we do not yield as much power as we could. However, also, well, we, I think we could give a little more, a lot more without getting wiped out, without taking over completely. We could do more than we're doing. But because of the fear factor, right. we're doing, we're doing you're it right. right. Thank you, Brother okay. Brock. I've got to go. I wish you had called up earlier and Hello. we'll hope to talk to you next Saturday night at 10 p.m. at Our Common Ground. Thank you all for being with us. We're ending with Ozzie Davis' most eloquent eulogy of Malcolm X. Here, at this final hour, in this quiet place, Harlem has come to bid farewell to one of its brightest hopes. Extinguished now and gone from us forever. It is not in the memory of man that this beleaguered, unfortunate, but nonetheless proud community has found a braver, 
more gallant young champion than this Afro-American who lies before us, unconquered still. I say the word again as he would want me to, Afro-American. Afro-American Malcolm. Malcolm had stopped being Negro years ago. It had become too small, too puny, too weak a word for him. Malcolm was bigger than that. Malcolm had become an Afro-American, and he wanted so desperately that we, that all his people, would become Afro-Americans too. There are those who still consider it their duty as friends of the Negro people to tell us to revile him, to flee even from the presence of his memory, to save ourselves by writing him out of the history of our turbulent times. And we will smile. They will say that he is of hate, a fanatic, a racist, who can only bring evil to the cause for which you struggle. And we will answer and say unto them, did you ever talk to Brother Malcolm? Did you ever touch him or have him smile at you? Did you ever really listen to him? You haven't done the right thing. Was he ever himself associated with violence or any public disturbance? For if you did, you would know him. And if you knew him, you would know why we must honor him. Malcolm was our manhood, our living black manhood. This was his meaning to his people. And in honoring him, we honor the best in ourselves. However much we may have differed with him or with each other about him and his value as a man, let his going from us serve only to bring us together now. Consigning these mortal remains to earth, the common mother of all, secure in the knowledge that what we place in the ground is no more now a man, but a seed, which after the winter of our discontent will come forth again to meet us, and we shall know him then for what he was and is, a prince, our own black shining prince, who didn't hesitate to die because he loved us so. You now know what your name was then. Where did it go? Where did you lose it? Who took it? And how did he take it? What tongue did you speak? How did the man take your tongue? Where is your history? How did the man wipe out your history? How did the man, what did the man do to make you as dumb as you are right now?
before Dr. Dre, there was Dr. James welding cords around the copper frame. We sing songs, not for the accolades, 